LBZ original. Wait, so I, I am still doing that? Yeah, that's all you have to say. I'm Lisa Hughes, and he says, I'm John Keller. Um, so like 60 Minutes style? Sort of. I'm Steve Croft. I'm Callie Crossley. I'm, yeah. Okay, got it. And I'd like you to read it exactly like you just read it. I will. Welcome to Studio BZ. I'm Lisa Hughes. And I'm John Keller. Media critic Dan Kennedy of Northeastern says newspapers are in trouble. Do they have a future at all? We'll ask him. We hope the winter has no more future in this spring of ours. Eric Fisher, our chief meteorologist, is going to be long talking about his final thoughts. At least we hope there is final thoughts on what seemed a very long end to our cold season. Please, no more. And we're talking with Congressman Joe Kennedy of Newton. He was born right on the cusp between Generation X and the millennial generation. Who does he identify with and why? with a greater readiness. Let us stand with a greater determination. Let us move on. In these powerful days, these days of challenge, to make America what it ought to be, we have an opportunity to make America a better nation. Dr. Martin Luther King, his final speech in Memphis, Tennessee, Uh, later that night, I believe it was, he stepped out on the balcony of his hotel, the Lorraine Motel, the one uh, motel that was available for black people to stay in in Memphis at that time. And uh, he was murdered uh, by an assassin's bullet, of course, This week, we're marking the 50th anniversary of that horrific crime. And Lisa, if you'll forgive me, I was 12 years old uh, when that happened. I was upstairs listening to probably a baseball game on the radio, and they broke in and repeated the news. And I wandered downstairs where my father had his monthly poker game going and broke the news to him and his friends. You broke the news? Yeah, because... I I told them, I just heard on the radio, Martin Luther King was killed. And I'd never seen this before. My father put his head in his hands and just, you know, shook his head and everyone was stunned. And then the next day in school, one of my black classmates couldn't go home at the normal time because he lived in Roxbury and they were afraid about rioting. Rioting had broken out, violence all over the country, terrible riots, Chicago, Washington, D.C., and there had been some incidents in Boston. But then Mayor Kevin White got together with James Brown, and uh, they decided to telecast James Brown's concert that was scheduled in the Boston Garden that night live on Channel 2. And that, ever since, that's became legendary because it was credited with keeping people home, keeping trouble to a minimum, and it's known as the night James Brown saved Boston. So there was a lot that went down in that 24-hour period, but looking back on it now, I still feel the same way I felt then, which is that this was 
the worst thing that ever happened to our country in my lifetime. Not that the Kennedy assassinations or the Vietnam War weren't terrible uh, history-changing events, but there's something about the slaughter of Dr. King in his prime that just still resonates with me and I think a lot of people as the worst thing that ever happened to us. It's interesting, I was listening to his one of his children talk about the same night that you're describing and he said, this was his son, that even to this day, when the breaking news bulletins come up on TV and he sees that, it's a moment of PTSD. He remembers vividly seeing that and almost the surreal news that his father was dead. Um, and, and, you know, all of, the, all of what they've tried to do as a family since then, sometimes quite unsuccessfully. Um, but to have that memory, you know, I, uh, in full disclosure, I wasn't born yet. Um, but my sister-in-law is, you know, everything they do in Project 351 um, is about the beloved community. And, and that idea of um, nonviolence, racial justice, economic equality. And I think the, you know, the big question right now that everyone is asking is, you know, how, how close are we to Dr. King's dream? I mean, what, what have we achieved since then? Well, you know, you can go online and look up all the statistical indicators of progress over the last 50 years for people of color, specifically for African Americans. And there's been tremendous progress. Then you can turn on your TV or boot up your laptop or whip out your phone and see the latest video of an unarmed black man being slaughtered uh, by police uh, in the backyard of his grandmother's home. Uh, And, you know, or you can read, uh, there was an article recently about how this wonderful tech revolution that we've been enjoying here in the Boston area with all its jobs and its economic benefits, guess which ethnic group is dramatically underrepresented in in that bounty. And and I have, you know, those numbers I think are striking because we think of ourselves in this part of the country and in Boston in particular because of the higher education here as being so enlightened and, you know, these opportunities that exist and we've, you know, you look around, the economy is really strong. And yet this associated press survey that you, that you talked about, the analysis uh, found that the ratio of white to black workers is like 10 to one in management. But then when you get into the tech jobs, it's 27 to one in computer and math related professions. I mean, that's striking. I think one of the only cities that was higher, oddly enough, was Seattle, where the ratio is 28 to 1. And I think when you step back and think about that, I mean, that's just staggering. It's not that, you know, it can't possibly be that there aren't um, African Americans and and Latinos who are eager to fill those positions. um, But the disparity is still so great. Well, and I think you, uh, to some extent, setting aside the obvious, you know, bigotry that still permeates a lot of our decision-making in this culture, you can draw a straight line back to the busing turmoil uh, here in Boston in the 1970s. It left a permanent scar, certainly, on the city's image nationally and internationally. But that was all about unequal educational opportunity being provided to black children. That's what the court order was was all about and was supposed to remedy. And you fast forward now, all these many years later, I think it's obvious there's been progress, but not enough, and that raises the question of why not. So I want to ask you about that. When you when you talk about you know when we talk about a scar, 
Does that ever go away? I mean, I, I, I feel like, wow. I mean, we, we really have, in so many ways, um, it, you know, become more open as a society. There is an effort, certainly even on the part of the mayor, um, to, to get more people of color into higher-paying jobs between now and 2022, a real concerted effort. I mean, does Boston ever lose that reputation? I don't know. That's a good question. What's it been now, 40 40 years, over 40 years. Uh, you know, the recent uh, Boston Globe series about right, racism in series. Boston. To me, there were a lot of interesting things in that series. Some of them were kind of controversial. Uh, but uh, one thing that really jumped out at me was a statistic that they plucked out of a f- uh, federal database, I believe it was, indicating that the, uh, I-, I know I'm going to botch this, I don't have it in front of me, but I believe it was the median. Uh, household the, the value, the medium household wealth of a bl- uh, black household in Boston was like a couple of bucks. Eight dollars. $8. Thank you, Jonathan. Eight dollars. And that speaks to the uh, degraded uh, property values of real estate in uh, black na- predominantly black neighborhoods. It speaks to a legacy of housing discrimination. That and- still exists. I mean, that, that housing discrimination and, and the sort of predatory lending that's taken place even in the past decade um, on the part of several big banks that's now been exposed. I mean, those kinds of things are, are, I think for people who are unaware or be- want to believe that those things don't still happen, it's just shocking. You know, the sad thing is you asked a great question. Are we ever going to get over this And then I think stigma? I cut you off. No, you didn't. <laughs> you didn't. Uh, the, uh, prior to that, and the, one of the reasons why the uh, anti-busing violence that occurred here and the vulgar behavior of, of too many Bostonians uh, was such a shock was because Boston's national and international reputation was as the cradle of the anti-slavery movement in America. Uh, Dr. King came here to study at BU School of Theology. Uh, You know, we were sort of a mecca of progressivism on civil rights issues, and that all got washed away then. I mean, getting back to the murder of Dr. King, uh, did you ever see the movie Standing in the Shadows of Motown? No. The documentary about the Funk Brothers, the Motown house band. Oh, see, I would love this. Oh, no. it's must-see. It's must-see. Anyway, the uh, uh, Barry Gordy stocked the studio at Motown with the best local musicians he could find. It was an interracial group of, of musicians. And in this movie, uh, there's an interview with one of the surviving original members of the Funk Brothers, Bob Babbitt, who was a white bass player who used to share the duties with the legendary James Jamerson, the, the Motown bassist. And uh, they're, uh, they're talking to Bob Babbitt about how after the King assassination, and there was unrest in Detroit, needless to say, what had been a really kind of a, a, an idealistic, mellow, peaceful coexistence scene within this musical community, within the Motown family, whites and blacks working together. Not an uncommon story in the recording industry back then, Motown stacks records in Memphis. All of a sudden it changed. 
Uh, Bob Babbitt, in the uh, nights following the King assassination, had to be escorted to his car by some of the black musicians. And the guy broke down and cried, remembering what that murder did to the life they were trying to build together. And I think there are people who will tell you that in that scenario, recreated a thousand different ways around the country, we've never recovered. Yeah, no, and, and even, you know, I would say recently, it seems we're able to have these conversations more. I feel like that uh, it's no longer anathema to discuss race the way it was, even as recently as that Starbucks effort. Do you remember the message on the cups? I think it was Race Together a few years ago. And it was, uh, it was an effort to get people to, to talk about race, sort of what was considered you know, the elephant in the room. And people went bananas and said, I don't want a coffee company telling me what to discuss, particularly on something as sensitive as race. Um, and then the man who came up with the concept and promoted it within Starbucks spoke to the ad club in Boston. And he talked about just wanting to start a conversation, that, there, there was, that, that it was one of those things that if, if nothing else, they wanted to break some of those barriers down. And for something that was so critical to our future success as a country, um, that it should be discussed. And so any small part they could play in that, I mean, you're already presumably buying the cup of coffee, so they're not selling you anything else. And I'm sure as a result of the backlash that they actually lost customers for a time. Um, but it was just interesting how, I would say, violently people reacted to that. And and it was over in, I would say, in a span of three weeks. There was this whole rollout that was planned. And they took out full-page ads, and it was it just disappeared. It was considered a complete failure, at least commercially. Um, so at least now I feel, and and, and this is perhaps the, the, the little tiny footnote to Dr. King's legacy, we're having this conversation again about where we are in terms of progress, where we've failed, where the, the notion of a beloved community um, is so far from our reality today. Um, we're having a conversation that I, I think has, has always been hard to have. A lot of us lapsed into a brief bout of playing pretend after Barack Obama was elected president. Hey, we got a black president now. We're, you heard it. You read it. Absolutely. We're living in a post-racial America. Well, now we know that that was self-delusion on a grand scale. And, you know, I, I, the part of the political genius of Martin Luther King was that he was able to rip off the veil. He understood the power of television the, and the power of having TV cameras there when nonviolent resistance that was insisting on just basic human rights, the right to sit where you want on the bus, the right to sit at a lunch counter and be served, uh, was met with over-the-top violence and hatred. And it was those images caught by TV and film cameras in the Deep South that led to the Civil Rights Act of 1965. I mean, it shocked the conscience of enough of white America to give political momentum to these long, long overdue changes that formed the basis of a lot of good things that have happened since. But 
so, you know, King was about not playing pretend. He was about exposing the darkness. So I don't think he'd want any of us to shy away from what's out there, from Charlottesville, from what's out on the web. Uh, from uh, where uh, sometimes, regrettably, uh, Trump-era politics goes. I I think he would argue sunlight's the best disinfectant. Painful as it is to see. It is painful. It's still painful. That is one memory, that night in 1968, that I wish I could forget, but I can't. Great show by James Brown that night, though. Although it was funny... God bless them over Channel 2. They tried to do the right thing, but the house announcer came on before they cut live to the garden and said, now we bring you a special musical presentation live from the Boston Garden with singer Jimmy Brown. (laughs) (laughs) I'm here with Congressman Joe Kennedy of the 4th Congressional District, where on earth is that? Every time I look, <laughs> it's gone from a snake riding on top of a buffalo to uh, uh, the equivalent of Quincy Shore Drive wrapped around a bouquet of roses. W- w- where is that? The greatest congressional district in the history of humankind, Mr. Keller. Um, Got it. <clears throat> it is. So we start in, in the northern part of the district, uh, right outside of Boston. So Brookline, Newton, Wellesley, Needham. Uh, shifts southwest, um, down more or less to the Rhode Island border, um, around Attleboro, North Attleboro, uh, Plainville, Rentham. um, Part of it juts back up towards Hopkinton, and we have Hopkinton. Uh, The majority of the district then shifts down further south, all the way down to Taunton and Fall River, and then it goes as far east as Foxborough and parts of Raynham. Um, So it's 34 cities and towns. It is economically extremely diverse. Um, We've got some of the wealthier communities around uh, Massachusetts. Um, We've got some uh, communities like Fall River and Taunton that are uh, home to some really proud uh, Massachusetts industries that are um, fighting and scratching their claw on the way through uh, an economic recovery. So um, do you, you're how old? 37. Do you identify, what generation do you identify yourself as? Depends on what question's coming next, Mr. (laughs) Keller. (laughs) Just tell me the truth. That's what I'm all about, the truth. (laughs) There you go. Um, So I'm right on the board of being a millennial. I'm kind of on the upper edge. Um, Some definitions of that are folks born in 1980. I'm born in October of 1980. So I'm right on the border of, I guess, a Gen Xer or a millennial. Well, uh, I was just reading an article the other day in The Nation about how uh, after really decades of declining labor union participation uh, and that continues for older generations, millennials are signing on to unions in large numbers and are sort of, for now, keeping the union movement afloat. Uh, do you see that? What do you think uh, in that regard or in any other regard, what kind of changes is the rise of millennials like yourself going to bring to Congress, to the economy? So I think what you're seeing, uh, on the one hand, that article is surprising. Uh, most folks don't actually think you know, there's been a lot of stories written, particularly of late, about the overall decline of unions and the fact that they are aging and, and not nearly uh, as uh, hold the economic power that they used to. On the other hand, when I think of unions, um, I think of organizations that try to at least provide some semblance of economic stability 
responsibility for their members, right? It's fair wages, collective bargaining, fair hours, fair, safe workplaces, uh, benefits that can help you raise a family. If you think of the challenge that millennials are up against, particularly now, it is all of those things. It's uh, their coming of age in the midst and the, the midst of a massive recession, or now an, an, an uneven economic recovery. Uh, they've got massive student loans that they've got to repay. The cost of housing is astronomical. It, it means people are going to be renting for longer. They're not able to actually uh, purchase a home at the time that their parents might have. They don't. They lose that home equity. Uh, healthcare costs are increasing uh, on them. They've they've been forced many of them into a gig economy, which does not ne- provide nearly the stability or the benefits that they need or the long term economic security for retirement. A union becomes a pretty darn good answer for all of those questions. So, not surprising given that the challenges that those millennials are facing. They say, hey, where can I go uh, to provide that type of what job will provide me that type of security? Um, it's a pretty good place to, to go. The second thing I think that, that um, potentially explains some of that is we are seeing a bit of a shift. Um, not There's obviously still is, and I think will be, extraordinary value in a four-year college degree. But John, I gave that speech a month ago from Diamond uh, Vocational School in Fall River. Um, that school is training um, their graduates to go off into a number of industries, and, and many of them are the trades, right? So plumbers, electricians. Uh, the median household income in Fall River, Massachusetts is about $34,000 a year. When I was talking to the guy that runs their plumbing department, he said, and I said, okay, so you're top students, and they are. They're going to whatever schools they want in the country. They're some of the brightest kids out there. When I said, what's your, a good, solid student? What's their future look like? And he said, they'll come out of here at 18 or 19 years old, just like a high school. Um, they will be able to get an apprenticeship. They can take their classes nice, work their, their job days. In two, two and a half years, they'll sit for a state board, and they'll be a licensed plumber. And I said, okay. So they're 20, 21 years old. Um, what does that mean for them? And he said, well, depending on where you are in the state, 75 grand a year. Nice. So... You've got a, as we're recognizing the value of vocational education and those trades, um, we in Massachusetts, uh, the stack came out a couple months ago, there's more CEOs in the state than plumbers. And if you've ever needed a plumber, you know that that is true. Um, so there's a real viable pathway to economic stability in a middle-class um, lifestyle uh, through those professions. And I think you're seeing millennials recognize that and uh, like everybody else, respond to those incentives. Speaking of economic pathway for millennials and for others in the future here, uh, you know, we were talking about the gig economy. Well, largely that's tied in with the rise of of tech, you know, digital industries where people are coming in, they're non-union shops, they wind up being exploited, uh, all of the issues uh, that arise there. Let me bring this back to an example I think a lot of our local listeners will appreciate. Uh, Market Basket, uh, a family-owned company. Uh, Everyone remembers the drama of a few years ago uh, where the employees rallied behind one owner engaged in a a dispute over control of the company uh, because that owner had been sort of the poster boy for a benevolent, uh, progressive boss. Uh, And they won. And movies have been made about it. It was an extraordinary story, an extraordinary example of uh, a a benevolent corporation. Well, here comes Jeff Bezos uh, with Whole Foods, which has a good footprint here in our area. And, you know, margins are tight in the grocery business. I wonder how long if he aggressively starts underpricing competitors like Market Basket, that benevolent 
company can survive. And if they do get blown out of the water by this massive remote corporation, what does that mean uh, for the customer, for the community? And I think all good questions, right? And Am I missing something? No. I, I, I find that alarming. No, and I, I don't think at all. I think there's a question... Uh, I think, look, the Justice Department, the administration, Congress is right to be asking some some questions here um, and asking some tough questions as to where things are going and what they what the overall uh, end goal is. Um, you know, the, the justification to have Whole Foods as a drop off and pick off uh, pick up location for Amazon packages. Fine. Um, the idea that they're using uh, those locations to sell Amazon merchandise. Fine. The idea that you're going to cross-subsidize those prices to drive them so low that you're going to price out competition. That's, uh, any, that's classic antitrust. That's classic antitrust. So uh, not so fine. Um, and so I think, again, the the challenge that we've got, like most things in life and most things before desk of uh, our desk in Washington, is that oftentimes it can be a little bit more complicated than people necessarily assume. Um no one or very few folks, I think, want to stand necessarily in the way of the innovation um, because we have seen the technological advancement bring a much higher quality of life to not just our citizens here, but folks around the world. That's a good thing. But we also have to recognize that that, that innovation, when it disrupts, comes with cost. And I think the writ large, kind of if you're looking at a 100,000 foot level here, that disruption on the whole can be good. The costs are not spread equally. You've got winners and losers. And so... Um, my wife and I, as, as we talked about, I've got a, a two, two-year-old and a 10-week-old. Um, there's times, more often than not, we're both exhausted. I've come back from Washington. Um, we're running low on diapers. You can buy diapers now with a thumbprint on your iPhone, um, and they can get to you within 24 hours. It saves you a trip to the CVS or the local pharmacy or grocery store or whatever else. That's easy. Um, what that means, though, is that the local corner store now has to compete with an Amazon distribution hub that is now in Fall River, Massachusetts, right? And that's harder for them to do. Um, again, those costs aren't aren't spread equally, right? And so we, I think, as elected representatives in Congress and then as kind of a, a community and society, have to then think through what are the, the benefits of this? Because there are benefits, but what are the costs and where are those costs born? Who, who bears them? And what can be done to mitigate some of those costs? And I think one of the concerns that I have with the, the current path that this administration on is you had a candidate that ran as a populist, identified these dislocations and said that he was going to fight for the folks that, that were on the losing end of it and has done everything uh, exactly the opposite of what he promised. He has, um, for those folks as we were talking about a little while ago, the, one of those main concerns about the increasing cost of health care and people that want to make sure they get access to health care, what was the first major piece of legislation they went through? Trying to destroy a bill that expanded health care to 30 million people uh, and then gutting Medicaid. What do they do on taxes? Rather than actually having an opportunity to increase uh, and to re-allocate kind of the, the, uh, and update our tax code to be a true middle-class tax bill, they put forth a tax bill that was going to target states with high, uh, high state and local taxes like Massachusetts, um, benefit states that had lower, uh, some of those lower taxes and lower property values, and then skew it predominantly towards the wealthy. Does that mean that middle class families won't see some benefit out of it? They'll see some, but the wealthy see an inordinately uh, a, a massively larger percentage of that, of that benefit. And I think we can say at this moment, um, is that really the proper way that those resources should be allocated? And I don't think so. Let me close by bringing this full circle. Uh, you've talked here, and I often hear you talking about the dysfunction in Congress. Everyone sees it. It's, it's no surprise. Uh, baby boomer 
political leadership is a fiasco. I don't think there's any question about it. Okay, so there's new generations coming up. You're right on the line between Gen X and the millennials. Won't be long now before those generations are in the driver's seat. Explain to me, make me feel better. (laughs) How How is that cause for hope that we can leave this disturbing era of failure behind us? So a couple things. One, um, I think new generations always look at the, some of these challenges and opportunities differently. Um, you're, you, we were brought up in, in a different time. Um, that's not necessarily better or worse, but it's just different. And so uh, the ways that we're going to respond to some of these these challenges are going to be different. We're, young Give me kids, an example. So, you know, the, the interaction certainly that a millennial generation has with technology is going to be a far more comfortable one than baby boomers at the moment. You've got, I've got a little girl at the moment that literally will go up to a TV and try to either swipe it to try to turn it on or to change the channel because she sees dad on an iPhone all the time um, and toggling through pictures. Uh, and the the consequence of that, on the one hand, means people are, are far more familiar with technology. They're not necessarily put off by it. But it also means that you've got uh, questions around, as you're seeing from millennials, saying, uh, you know, we want, we want to be closer to a community. You are far more uh, cause-driven than fi- financially driven. They want to be, uh, they like, they're, they're cognizant of climate change. They're far more racially and, uh, uh, tolerant. They're far more tolerant of different uh, sexual orientations and gender identities. It's a far more tolerant um, generation, period. Uh, but they've also were burdened with a massive amount of student loans and a massive deficit that's getting bigger and bigger. Um, that's going to have consequences. And the, I think you also have in a millennial generation ones that as we take charge now, um, you know, I'm, as we talked about, 37 years old, uh, You've got you, you got to try to set these frameworks for folks that are going to be in the workforce for the next thirty plus years. Um, that's a different horizon. That's a different uh, series of issues than if you're sixty five now, and you're looking at uh, perhaps staying in the workforce for another five to ten years, uh, and then retirement. And um, that just means that you look at issues, generational issues like climate change, um, like these issues on artificial intelligence and the dislocation that happen, like the deficit and debt and student loans, where for a parent's popu- our parents' population, student loans are an issue because they might be paying for them or they're worried about that cost of college for their kids. For us, it's, uh, it's a burden on our backs, right? And I obviously was from a family that was fortunate so that I didn't have to have them, but I am the rare exception to this. Um, my wife has had those student loans for an awfully long time, and um, that limits people's options. And so I think, um, I think there's a generation that is more tolerant, that is more open, that is more um, forward-looking and thinking at this point, uh, provides some great optimism for the future. Hope you're right. Me too. (laughs) Joe Kennedy, thank you. Thank you. This is Greater Boston, cradle of American democracy. So here we have this millennial Kennedy, the family that's kind of become a baby boomer icon. All baby boomers identify with the Kennedys, the Kennedy assassination, the Kennedys in power. Uh, I wonder where he's going to lead and how it's going to look different from what Kennedy leadership looked like a couple of generations ago. It'll be interesting to watch. Well, as a true millennial, I mean, his concerns will be different than those, obviously, of his forebears. And he also seems to be 
um, accessible in a way that I that I don't know all of his older family members were. You know, if you if you go to events, his whole uh, demeanor is is a, a little more casual. Um, you know, obviously that's sort of the hallmark of his generation, but. In the same way that I think uh, Gen Xers were maligned, (laughs) says a Gen Xer, you know, I think um, millennials take some really unfair shots in that they are facing these burdens that were left to them. And they seem to apply these very creative problem-solving strategies to working through them. Um, And so it's interesting. While I think people may dismiss him in some respects, either exalt him or dismiss him because he's a Kennedy, he does seem to be carving his own path in a very thoughtful way and making himself accessible and and coming up with ideas as if to say, I'm my own man. I am a leader with, uh, with, a, a, with a vision that is not necessarily tied to everything that's come before me. That's right on the money, Lisa, because I covered his first run for Congress after Barney Frank retired. Uh, and uh, not until election night, when he was celebrating his victory, did you see other family members, his father, of course, former congressman, other famous members of the family? They were not in evidence throughout that campaign. It was just, hi, I'm Joe. And so that speaks to this this guy trying to chart a different course. Yeah. And, and you know what? I think that he's smart to do that, obviously, for a host of reasons, not the least of which is that um, – Millennials are are not as impressed with that legacy, um, in that uh, that doesn't necessarily carry weight. Um, but being your own person and speaking to you know the concerns of voters his age, when he talks about those student loans, I mean that just resonates with so many people. And to acknowledge, as as I think he must, hey, look, that wasn't that wasn't a problem I had. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I you know obviously a very privileged uh, young man, um, but his wife had those issues, and so it's being able to relate to people in that way, even when your circumstances don't necessarily mirror theirs. And it works out politically, too, because anybody over the age of 50 knows who he is. He doesn't have to explain. Right. They know what the Kennedy Joe name Joe carries is. the last name, too. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. The unexpected is not knowing what's going to happen. Uh, that's the problem. Uh, last year, we lost our video. So, newspapers are dead, right? Maybe not so fast. According to Dan Kennedy of Northeastern University in his new book, The Return of the Moguls, how Jeff Bezos and John Henry are remaking newspapers for the 21st century, there is still some hope that America's, I would argue, still foremost and primary news source still has some life left into it. Let's talk about why he feels that way and uh, what the future might look like as we welcome Dan to WBC. Dan, congratulations on your new book. Thank you, John. Thanks for having me. Available, I take it, on Amazon and uh, elsewhere. Yes, on Amazon, but more important, in your local bookstore. Yeah. Support your local bookstore if you have one. I appreciate that sentiment. Um, I imagine there's a significant number of our listeners who are thinking, newspapers I can't remember 
the last time I picked up a newspaper. And that's been the trend, as you document in The Return of the Moguls. What is possibly going to reverse that trend? Or is it just a, you know, baton death march uh, into the dustbin of history for the newspapers the way we know them? Well, <laughs> that's, a, that's a cheery thought, isn't it, John? Yeah. Uh, I, I think that what we're looking at uh, is that we are only about a quarter of a century into the internet age, and uh, in terms of newspaper owners trying to figure out how to deal with the internet age, and we've seen um, a lot of things being attempted. Uh, for a very long time, there was an expectation that we would be able to give away the news for free online and uh, support it through this wonderful new uh, age of multimedia advertising. And it didn't work for various reasons. Uh, The classifieds all went to Craigslist. Uh, The display ads did not make a good transition to online. I would argue that no one has ever clicked on a banner ad except by mistake. And then finally, the the last nail in the coffin of digital advertising for newspapers was uh, Facebook and Google came along and took up almost all new digital ad spending. So really what we've been dealing with in recent years, and and the story I'm really telling in the book, is how newspapers moving forward are going to get back to the idea of charging their readers to pay for the news. When we talk about audience for, let's stick with the globe, because uh, obviously our our audience knows the globe perhaps more than these other papers. Are we talking about uh, an older demographic that is used to holding a newspaper or used to turning to the globe as a primary news source and just trying to desperately hang on to them? Or is there actually hope that the iPhone generation, which is not newsprint oriented in the slightest, uh, can somehow over time be won over? I, I think the latter. I think the globe has made a lot of strides on the digital side, and they've been able to do that even though they've actually showed quite a bit of disrespect for people who want to read the news on their phone. How do you mean? Um, You know, the Globe has a pretty nice website. Uh, And if you're going to read the paper the way I do, which is I kind of prop my laptop up in the morning while I'm eating breakfast, uh, it's a pretty good experience. But uh, the Globe does not have any good mobile products. The website does look fairly good on a phone, but it's a little slow on a phone. You need a constant, high-quality internet connection. Uh, You know, it's funny. um, More than two years ago, I interviewed uh, Katie Kingsbury, who was then the Globe's managing editor for digital, and we were talking about the Globe's lack of a mobile product. And she told me at that time, oh, I'm evaluating a lot of different platforms. Uh, we hope to unveil something next year. Well, next year is long since come and gone. Katie Kingsbury is now at the New York Times, and you're still stuck with either the Globe website on your phone or this replica of the paper that makes, you know, it takes the entire newspaper page and makes it about three inches high. Why is this happening? And, you know, I look at the Globe's owner, John Henry, brilliant businessman, 
Baby Boomer. Brian McGrory, terrific editor and writer. Baby Boomer. Is it possible that Baby Boomer management, at least here in Boston, just doesn't get it when it comes to figuring out what this younger audience wants? Well, I don't know. You and I are baby boomers, John. I think uh, we understand uh, digital platforms and uh, and their importance. Um, if you insist, go it, ahead. Yes, I'll insist. <laughs> I hope I'll you're insist. right. I, I hope so, too. You know, I think that the big problem here, as I said, I think the Globe's doing some very good things yeah. digitally oh, yeah. if you're looking at the web. What have we learned uh, with regard to the Globe and its ability to... Uh, to transition into the digital age from the whole Boston.com fiasco. Boston.com was one of the first newspaper web domains yes. uh, in the country and one of the most successful early on. Yep. And then what happened? Well, I mean, you know, you call it a fiasco. Uh, I don't want to make it sound like I'm gilding the lily here, but I understand the strategy a little bit differently from that. And that is, why did we love Boston.com? Because you could read the Globe for free. That was 80% of its appeal, if not more. Uh, the Globe made a decision uh, under New York Times company ownership, by the way, this predated John Henry, uh, that they were going to launch a new website, bostonglobe.com. They were going to charge for it, and they were going to stop giving away their journalism on boston.com. So once this happened... Boston.com literally didn't have a mission, and they've tried this and that. And That's it, what I was referring to. They tried to turn it into a clickbait farm, right? right? Yep. And with, with a notable lack of success, correct? Yes. Well, yes, an absolute notable lack of success, but their lack of success in turning Boston.com into a money-making clickbait farm coincides perfectly with the overall decline of the idea that you can have these free clickbait farms and make money at it. No, except for a very few large sites like HuffPost and BuzzFeed and a few others, nobody's making any money at this. When they started out doing it, there was some reason to think they could make some money. But the audience for that, not just in Boston, but nationally, just started shrinking. And more important, the advertising revenue for it started. Started shrinking. Well, Dan, we live in a cynical age, so I'm going to ask the ultimate cynics question, which you do address in your book, The Return of the Moguls, which is who cares if, okay, maybe there's a path to a future and profitability for big national papers like The Post and The uh, and and the New York Times and you know BuzzFeed is a legitimate news organization that's doing good work. Vice and so on. There, there have been some success stories, but if big regional papers like the Boston, we're seeing the Herald die. A big regional paper like the Boston Globe dies. Who cares? Why does that matter? Well, I think it matters because, and and I've tracked this in my previous book, The Wired City, uh, when the large daily newspaper ceases to perform its functions, you do see other 
projects rise up to fill in for some of what the big paper used to do. But I don't think that there's any substitute, even now, for a large regional paper's ability to pull together different types of news, international, national, local, regional, gather together something resembling a mass audience, although that's not what it used to be. And as a result of that, have some influence and affect change. Uh, It's been estimated that something like 80% of the accountability journalism we depend on uh, to to keep an eye on government and other large institutions still comes from newspapers. And it's not clear if newspapers go away, if some of the nonprofit projects and and television and radio are really going to be able to uh, rise up and and fill in for that. So I, I think the health of newspapers and the health of democracy are really kind of tied together. Wow. Are you optimistic? Pessimistic or somewhere in between? I'm somewhere in between, leaning toward optimism. We're still very early in the uh, internet age for newspapers, and I think there are signs that we may yet figure it out, but there's certainly uh, no guarantee of that. The Return of the Moguls, how Jeff Bezos and John Henry are remaking newspapers for the 21st century. The author, Dan Kennedy of Northeastern University. Thanks, Professor. Thank you, John. I appreciate it. Those who made it home with alcohol warming their veins probably still have shoveling to face tomorrow. But that's tomorrow. And for now, it's enough just to make it through the night. Uh, I'm Eric Fisher. I uh, talk about clouds for a living. It's been busy, for sure. We've seen basically everything that winter could throw at us. Just that two-week stretch, Christmas to the first week of January, that was the coldest on record in Boston. Uh, If you go to February, it was the warmest on record we had the first time in recorded history since 1872. Back-to-back 70-degree days. I mean, it felt like summertime out there. And one of our snowiest marches on record overall. Um, So it's been a busy one for forecasters and for DPW crews, no question. The flooding is something I think that we'll see more and more of. Sunny day flooding is something that they're tracking, especially in the eastern U.S. We get coastal flooding without a storm. Uh, There's no major wind. Might be a nice day, and you see water covering roads. Morrissey Boulevard might get shut down. Uh, The reason for that is sea level rise. We're seeing our water levels come up, and a few inches makes a big difference. Uh, And when we start talking about a foot or two feet, now you're going to be seeing this flooding very frequently, almost every high tide cycle. Um, and that's a trend that we expect will continue in the years to come. Uh, we had a storm that did not pan out. Now, this was a storm where we thought there'd be a really sharp cutoff. We had two to five inches of snow north of the pike and then five to eight inches south of the pike. And what we ended up seeing was a major snowstorm in the mid-Atlantic and it got up to Long Island and then the dry air took over. Uh, but especially with snowstorms, it's still difficult. There are still going to be losses on the side of the forecaster, and that was one of them. Um, but we expected more, and it just didn't pan out. No one feels worse than the forecaster. Uh, well, some people by the emails might have felt worse, but did they really? Um, you know, I spend all night not sleeping and sitting there feeling miserable, looking at the radar going, yep, this isn't going to happen. Um, you just want to be right all the time. It feels terrible. The only way, only 
way to have a perfect forecast is to know what every molecule in the atmosphere is doing right now. And if we knew that and we put that into a computer model, it would give us the perfect result. But we don't. A Boston meteorologist, not perfect. Lisa, have you ever heard of such a thing? I, I haven't. You know, I'm I, I'm so glad that he's still with us. Um, no, I mean that boy, and and he wasn't alone, right? They all got that one wrong. Yeah. But you can just see it when he's talking about it. His whole body sort of recoils. It's like Eric, it's okay. In fact, if you're going to be wrong, please be wrong. Um, on the side of there being no snow, you know, to to have that storm fall short of expectations, I think was just fine with most of us. I think everyone was thrilled. And, you <laughs> know, I have to admit, I, I, I like to play a dirty trick on Eric or a, a nasty prank. If I'm going to be on vacation or I have tickets to an early season night game at Fenway, I go in some time in advance, explain to him that I'm going to need good weather for what I'm doing. Give him the date and I say, look, I know where you live. Uh, Either you take care of this or there's going to be problems. And he smiles and laughs nervously and he gives me that look a lot of people around here give me, which is, is this guy for real? (laughs) Would he really come to my house? (laughs) He might. And speaking of coming to our house, thank you. Oh, this was so much fun. Thank you to everyone. For you and to everyone for joining us. I'm sure after listening to this, people want to give us you know what on Twitter. Lisa, how can they reach you? At Lisa WBZ. And I'm at Keller at Large. Talk to you later. So natural. <laughs>